How are you, Summit Bible Church? That's encouraging. <laughs> How are you guys? Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you. If you meant it. <laughs> hey, what do you guys think of the extra screen? Was that helpful to you? Okay, good. We're, we brought it in this week because we're trying to set up for Easter. So we expect... Also, the chairs are set up a little bit different, if you notice. So is that okay with you? You guys like the extra aisle? That way you can get out if it gets too hot in here? <laughs> so we're just trying to set up for Easter. We expect it to be big. We, we trust that you will invite somebody, bring somebody with you, preferably someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, as we're moving through the Gospel of Mark. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, page 843 will bring you to that text. Let me just read you a story from, uh, that I took from Our Daily Bread. It's a little devotional book that we have available in the back. The story goes like this. While attending college, I visited a psychiatric institution with a group of students to observe various types of mental illness. The experience proved to be very disturbing. I remember one man who was called, quote, No Hope Carter. No Hope Carter. His was a tragic case. A victim of venereal disease, he was going through the final stages when the brain was affected. Before he began to lose his mind, this man was told by the doctors that there was no known cure for him. He begged for one ray of light in his darkness, but he had been told that the disease would run its inevitable course and eventually end in his death. Gradually, his brain deteriorated and he became more and more despondent. When I saw him in his small, barred room about two weeks before he died, he was pacing up and down in mental agony. His eyes stared blankly, and his face was drawn and ashen. Over and over, he muttered these two sad and fateful words, No hope. No hope. He said nothing else. We're currently working on a door hanger that we're going to distribute to the community after the Easter time. And on that door hanger, we have written the following words. A person can survive without sleep for 12 days, food for 40 days, and water for six days. But how long can a person live without hope? Sadly, there are people everywhere who who are in the process of discovering the answer to that question. Within the details of the text before us today is a message of hope. But we will have to do a little work to dig it out. So are you guys ready to get started? Yeah, there we go again. Wow. So turn the air down. You guys ready to look into God's Word and get started to dig out this treasure? Mark chapter 7, follow along with me as I read from God's inspired word, 7, 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, that is Jesus, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. If you've been with us before, maybe you haven't, inside of the bulletin on the left-hand side is an outline. This morning we are going to attempt to cover five points. 
Someone told me earlier this week that he doubts I'll be able to get through five points, that I have a hard time getting through three. So I accept the challenge. Jason? So I'm going to speak a little bit faster maybe. But this morning we're going to examine five surprising and enlightening details. This is right in your outline at the top of Jesus' encounter with this Syrophoenician woman so that we might glorify God for His great mercy extended to Gentiles. And just in case you don't know, if you're not Jewish, according to the Bible, you are a Gentile. Okay? If you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. You might be from Europe or wherever, but all of that comes under the heading in the Bible as Gentile. First point we're going to look at is Jesus' destination in this text. Jesus' destination. Mark chapter 7. Just look back at the first verse with me, verse 24. It says, And from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. Sidon. So, just as way of context to remind you, after an intense confrontation with the religious leaders in which he called them hypocrites and said their worship was worthless, and we saw that in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 7. We're still in chapter 7. Mark informs us here that Jesus departed to a new location northwest and outside of Galilee to a Gentile region, not Jewish. Not Jewish. This region being Tyre and Sidon. It was a coastal city northwest 30-40 miles of Galilee, where most of his ministry was taking place around the Sea of Galilee. As I said, this area around this the area around these two coastal cities on the Mediterranean Sea right there bordering these towns was known as the land of Phoenicia, the land of Phoenicia. Today, this area is called Lebanon. Lebanon, if any of you are familiar with geography. What is important for you to know is in Jesus' time, this particular area was considered an extreme pagan territory by the Jews. By pagan, I mean the people worshipped false gods. Okay? Not the one true God of Israel. Not the one true God of the Scriptures. And beyond that, they were known and had a history of hostility towards the Jewish nation. Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are a number of passages that address the sins of the people in this particular region and declare God's judgment on them. You can write them down if you do that type of thing, and you can look at them later. later Isaiah chapter 23, the entire chapter. Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 4. Ezekiel chapters 26 through chapters 28. Joel chapter 3 verse 4, Amos chapter 1 verse 9, and Zechariah chapter 9 verse 2. You should also know that in the second century, so 200 years approximately, before Jesus was born, the Jews revolted against their pagan oppressive king in an attempt to achieve independence and religious freedom, so that they might be able to worship their God. For the king was forbidding that to happen. Tyre and Sidon, the same area, came to the aid of the king and helped fight against the Jews. This is only approximately 160 or so years prior to Christ's coming. So there's some resentment that's built up. In 66 AD, this is after... Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. There was another Jewish revolt. This time it was against Rome, who was another oppressor of the Jewish people. A first century Jewish historian, who is called Josephus, reported that the Tyrians, that simply means the people of Tyre, supported Rome in that revolt by killing and imprisoning many Jews. You just need to understand this particular area and the people that existed there. This writer, Josephus, went on to say that the people from Tyre were, quote, our bitterest enemies, that is, of the Jews, our bitterest enemies. So knowing that information now begs the question, why would a godly Jew 
like Jesus, withdraw from Galilee, a predominantly Jewish area, to spend time in a historically hostile and fully pagan Gentile territory. Mark 7.24, if you look back at the text, says that when he got there, he, quote, entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. That statement does not tell us what Jesus' motives were for going to this particular area, this region. Some have speculated that he was looking for some much-needed rest and time alone with his disciples. And in light of all the events that have already taken place and the resistance of the Pharisees, that is certainly possible. If you remember, they were trying to get some rest before, if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, and that did not happen because the crowds came and then Jesus decided to minister to them. So it's possible. It's possible. We also know from the text that he was trying to keep his presence there a secret. A secret. He didn't want anybody to know, the text says. So he had no intentions of ministering to the crowds there as he had done in Galilee. But isn't there somewhere else he could have gone for rest besides this God-forsaken land? Hebert states, a writer, a commentary, just listen, and we'll build. As the points build, you'll start to see where we're going. He says this, This trip that Jesus made to Tyre and Sidon marked the first time during his ministry that Jesus actually penetrated recognized pagan territory. It foreshadowed. Foreshadowed just simply means it suggested something that was going to happen in the future. It foreshadowed the extension of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It foreshadowed the extension of the gospel to the Gentile world. I think Hebert is on to something here. I think he's on to something. Other commentators have made these statements about this passage. These events in Gentile territory are a fitting preview of the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentile world. And, quote, there can be no doubt that Gentile readers would have been vitally interested in this particular account. Do you remember, we've said it before, who was Mark writing to predominantly when he wrote this gospel? Gentiles. Gentiles. Now, if you are not aware of the utter disdain or contempt that Jews had for Gentiles, especially for Gentiles in the region of Tyre and Sidon, then the significance of Jesus' actions here is entirely missed. The Gentile Jew problem, by the way, continued long after Christ's resurrection. Just so you know, there is hostility that is built up between these two people groups. In fact, one of the greatest challenges for Jewish Christians, those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as their King, one of the greatest challenges for them in the early church was learning to fully accept and embrace Christian Gentiles as brothers and sisters in the Lord by having true fellowship with them. In fact, many of the epistles or letters that we have in the New Testament are addressing that very issue, the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And now they're supposed to come together as one in the body of Christ. So the first point is Jesus' destination. Jesus' destination. The second one, see how fast I'm going, Jason? Are you impressed? All right. The woman's classification. The woman's classification. That we will see in Mark chapter 7, verse 25 through 26. All of these are interesting details that should not be overlooked. Mark is trying to communicate something here. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, there's nothing surprising about verse 25. There's nothing surprising. You have a, a mother's daughter, we're told, was under the control of a demonic spirit. And she heard 
from others about Jesus' ability to cast out demons, demonic spirits. So when she found out that he was in the area, she did what any mother would do. She immediately came to him and fell at his feet. By the way, this falling at the feet is a sign of great respect or grief. A sign of great respect or grief. And she begins to beg Jesus to help her daughter. Now, I don't care if you're Jew, Gentile, purple, green, alien, blue. I don't care. You have kids and they're hurting. And you find out that this person can help them. You're going to do whatever it takes to get them there. Take care of them. Get this person to come and help your children. So there's nothing unusual about that. Now, this story should should cause your memory banks to say, this sounds very familiar if you've been with us for the past several months. We read about a very similar story in Mark chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. And I'll just remind you of this story. That was where a ruler of a synagogue, a synagogue is a Jewish temple, a ruler of a synagogue would be a Jew. Okay? The ruler of a synagogue named Jairus came to Jesus, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 5, fell at his feet, same type of reaction to Jesus, and did the same thing. He begged Jesus to come and heal his little daughter, who at the time was deathly ill. But that is where the similarities between the two stories end. This woman was not a Jew. She was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. The fact that Mark takes time to tell us this should not be viewed as something that is insignificant. Not only is the Jewish Jesus staying in pagan Gentile territory, but now one of those Gentiles is attempting to engage him in conversation and pleading for his help. Pleading for his help. Now, I don't know, if you have an NIV or a King James translation, you might see that the identification here of the woman is that she was Greek. And it's not the word Gentile. Let me explain something to you. The original word simply meant that she was Greek in a general sense. So what it's signifying is that she was non-Jewish. She was a Gentile who had adopted Greek culture meaning that she was Greek in regard to her language, she would speak Greek, and her religion, she was pagan. She worshipped multiple gods. Her place of birth, the text tells us, was not Greece. For Mark says it was Syrophoenician, or that she was Syrophoenician by birth, indicating that she was a native of the area of Phoenicia, the region of Tyre and Sidon that we just talked about. And at the time, that particular area was under the control of Syria. That's why he gives her this distinction. She is Syria-Phoenician. Syria-Phoenician. By the way, if you remember that story of Jairus, Jairus actually, if you remember when he came to Jesus and pleaded with Jesus, to come and heal his daughter? How did, how did Jesus respond? You guys remember? He left immediately. Just keep that in your mind. He left immediately and went and helped this Jewish father and this little sick girl. Now, the fact that she's a Gentile to the first century Jew and this whole encounter with Jesus would have been offensive. It would have been offensive. They, especially a Gentile from Tyre and Sidon, in their minds they may have been thinking, how dare a Gentile woman from Phoenicia come and ask Jesus for help? These people have not helped us. In fact, they have sought our harm. And they even despise our God. How dare she? Additionally, if you remember over the past couple of weeks, Jews were taught that physical contact with a Gentile would defile them or make them impure 
before God. I'm just going to read a text to you, Acts chapter 10, verse 28. You can write that down, but just listen. You don't have to turn there. Acts 10, 28. It is written, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Of another nation. Gentile. Therefore, the fact that the woman approaching Jesus was a Gentile elevates the tension that exists in this story. The woman's classification is also Mark's way of preparing the reader for Jesus' surprising reaction. And that brings us to point three. So we have Jesus' destination, the woman's classification. He's in a Gentile, pagan, hostile territory speaking with and talking to a Gentile Syrophoenician woman who is pleading for this Jesus, who is a Jew, to help her little daughter. The whole thing is a little shocking, intense. But it's important for you to know who she is. Otherwise, you would not understand what Jesus is about to say. Look back at the text with me. Jesus' reaction, number three. Mark 7:27 He said to her, I want think about this. Here's the woman. Imagine yourself in the situation. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. That is not good for anybody. Doing vile and wicked things to her. She comes immediately when she hears that this Jesus has shown up in her territory because she has heard through the rumorville that he has the power to cast out demons. So she comes and she falls at his knees and she's pleading with him, begging. And here's what he says. Let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, at first glance, it appears that Jesus is brushing this poor woman off and possibly insulting her. Consider, as I said, how different Jesus' response was when the Jewish leader of the synagogue approached him about his daughter. I'll just read it to you to remind you. Mark 5, 22-24, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, quote, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. How did Jesus respond? Verse 24, and he went with her. Him. He went with him. That was it. None of this, no, I don't think so. Uh, I won't be going with you. I won't be healing your daughter. He just went. And eventually he did heal his daughter. No hesitation. Why the different reaction to this woman? Why the different reaction? What is behind Jesus' strange statement? to this desperate Gentile woman? And to answer that question, we're going to need to ask just a few questions. Who are the children that he's talking about? What is the bread? And who are the dogs? Who are the dogs? Okay? Now, if this gets a little complicated, we have connection cards. And I don't have one up here. But on the back of the connection card, the idea is you could write something on the back of the connection card. Pastor, I have no idea what you were talking about. And then just cite the passage that you had no idea what I was talking about. The entire thing. I had no idea at all. And then I will call you and we can try to figure it out. It's, I want you to stay with me. It's a little deep, this whole Jewish-Gentile thing. I want you to know that many of the things in the Bible are misunderstood or misinterpreted because they miss the context in which it's happening, which is this Jewish-Gentile conflict. So, let's look at this together. The children, beloved are the nation of Israel, the Jews. The children are the nation of Israel. During Jesus' encounter with the woman, one of Jesus' statements that are not recorded in Mark, but are recorded in Matthew, or is recorded in Matthew, and you can look at it with me, Matthew chapter 15. Just flip to the left, page 821. This is the same account, we call it a parallel account, of this story, but it's in a different gospel. It's in the gospel of Matthew. 
And many times you have the same story recorded in one of the multiple points of the four Gospels. Some things are recorded in all four Gospels. Others are recorded in just two of them. Some things are only recorded in one of them. If we look at all of the reports, then it fills out the story because each one gives us a little, little more detail. There's a particular detail that I think is important in understanding who the children are that Mark doesn't include, but Matthew does. Matthew 15, verse 24. Same scenario, same situation. Here's the woman. This time he answered, so this part is left out of Mark. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So it is best understood that Israel are or is the children. And in fact, Israel understood itself to be the children of God. For God identified himself as their father. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 9. You can write it down and look it up later. And he called Israel his Children, Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. Also saying in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 14, these words, For you are a people. Who is, who is he talking to? He's talking to the Jewish nation. He is not talking to everyone in general. And this is important, beloved, because many times we take passages that God is directing to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, and we want to apply them to us. But they weren't written to us. They were written to the nation of Israel. He says here, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God is making a distinction. He's saying, Out of all the people, I have chosen you to be My people. Now, like it or not, and many in the world do not like it, Israel has been given a privileged position by God. Not because they deserved it, but because God chose it to be that way. You can look up Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, if you're taking notes. So, the children are Israel, the nation of Israel. The children's bread, then, is best understood as representing the blessings of Jesus' ministry to, who do you think? The Jewish people. To the Jewish people. What about the dogs? Uh, this is a tough one. Remember I said earlier that we're Gentiles? I don't, do you still want to be a Gentile? Okay, this one's a little tricky. Dogs was a term that Jews were known to use to refer to Gentiles in an insulting way. In an insulting way. The Bible also uses the term dogs in a derogatory manner. Not necessarily speaking of Gentiles, but just in a way that's an insult. And you can look at these references again on your own. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. So, just so you understand, calling someone a dog in the New Testament era or even the Old Testament era might be equivalent to us calling someone pond scum. So, hold on a second. We're getting through it. So, it might be equivalent to that. So, just so that you understand, this is an insult. It's an insulting term, Okay. Now, before we jump to any conclusions about Jesus, like, wow, why would he talk like that to this poor woman? Commentators are quick to point out that the word Jesus used here for dogs is not the same one, and this is true, it's not the same one that's used for the filthy, vicious street scavengers that roamed the Eastern world. world, Eastern world. In other words, you and I, we don't see dogs necessarily like this, but in other parts of the world, dogs, they're not necessarily nice or friendly and they're scavengers. They attack children and drag them away or stuff like that. And this still goes on today. Kids throw rocks at them. They don't invite them into their home. Okay? But 
The word used here is not that word. It it is a word that means little dogs or puppies or puppies. And it implies a household pet. It, It was possible for someone to have a dog as a pet, just in some ways like we do today. So one commentator states, his reference is to the little household pets, which while not children in the house, yet... They had a place in the affairs of the household. You understand? They had a place in the affairs of the household, just like our household pets do today. Some houses, they have a a greater uh, place in the affairs of the household, sleeping with the parents, you know, the adults, and so on and so forth. Now, here's the thing, though. Here's what I want you to understand. No matter how you slice this, whether whether it really was derogatory in the sense that the Jews would use it, or he lowered the blow by saying little puppies, household pets. Being referred to as a dog in any way is not really a compliment. Would you agree? It's not really a compliment. Even though people in our culture, as I said, treat their their pets sometimes as family members, a distinction here was being implied. A dog in the house is not as privileged as the children in the home. Just keep, it, just keep it there. A dog in the house is not as privileged as the children in the home. I know, again, for some of you that is not true. But in general, that's what's being communicated here. Right, Heidi? Yes. yes. <laughs> I can't. Okay, I won't say that. So... There is one more word here. Just keep, keep with me. There's one more word here in Jesus' reply that you don't want to miss. Look back at the text. Mark chapter 7, verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed, what? First. First. This word first is bursting with hope. It's bursting with hope. And I said we would have to dig for this. We are digging right now. Because it implied that the time of Gentile blessing was coming. It was coming. The priority of Jesus' Jesus' ministry was first to the Jewish people. As he called them to repentance and proclaimed to them the promise, the long-awaited, anticipated promise of God's kingdom. It is important at this point to remember this, beloved. Remember this. Don't ever forget this whenever you're reading the Scriptures. Jesus is a Jew. His disciples were Jews. The Scriptures they quoted were Jewish in origin. And God had uniquely identified Himself with the Jews by making unbreakable and beneficial promises to them that we call, or the Bible calls, covenants but that does not mean that the gentiles would be left out in the cold or that god didn't care for them in fact god's intentions have always been that through his chosen nation israel would come blessings to the entire world now don't take my word for it let's see what the bible says Turn all the way back to that first book of your Bible, Genesis chapter 12, page 8, if you're using one of those church Bibles. In this section, God made one of these covenants. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant, a special promise made to Abraham, which was the first patriarch of the Jewish people. Genesis chapter 12, looking at verse 2. Here's the promise God made to Abraham. I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here it is. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. He's making a reference to 
Gentiles. Through the nation that would come from Abraham's loins would come blessing to the entire world. The priority of the Jew first was also, by the way, recognized by the Apostle Peter. Sometime after Jesus' ascension, Peter was speaking to the Jews. Just continue to flow with me. Follow the the thoughts and the arguments that we're we're making right now. Acts chapter 3. You're going to flip all the way back to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 3, page 911. I know, there's no connection. Page 911, that's just the page number it is. Acts chapter 3, looking at verse 25 and 26, Peter said to the Jewish people, you've got to know who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jews. This is after Jesus' resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. The Spirit has come. The church has been born. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets. Who are the sons of the prophets? The Jewish people he's talking to. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, your descendants, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We just read it, didn't we? That's all. Peter's just going back. He's pulling that forward. 26. God, having raised up His servant, who's His servant? Jesus. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you. What's the word? First. Jewish priority. Sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Do you remember when we started Mark? What was the message that Jesus was preaching to the Jewish people? Repent! Turn! And He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Sadly, beloved, sadly the nation God had chosen rejected Him. We read it this morning, Mark 15. On one day, Hosanna, King of David. A few days later, crucify Him. Crucify Him. John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. What do you think He's talking about? The Jews! He came to His own people. Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jewish nation, and they did not, as a nation, receive Him. There were Jews that did respond to Him, but as a nation, they rejected Him and ultimately crucified Him. Now, the apostles continued, beloved, to appeal to the nation of Israel to receive Jesus as their king. This is good. Hold on with me. But they stubbornly refused and began persecuting the church, those who were following Christ. What was the result? Something pretty amazing. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Just turn back. Well, maybe you're still in Acts. Turn to the right, page 922, if you're in that blue Bible. Look at the text with me. See that this comes from the Bible. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, he's speaking to the Jews, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken, what's the word? First. It is necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That's us. That's us. The promises that God made to the nation of Israel include a glorious kingdom. We've been talking about it. The kingdom of God. They include a glorious kingdom filled with bountiful blessings in which Christ will be the King. But here's the trick. The establishment of that kingdom on earth will not happen. Will not happen until Israel responds appropriately to Jesus Christ. 
That was the reason for the Jewish priority of Jesus' mission. The kingdom that is talked about through the entire Old Testament, or a good portion of it, the fulfillment of all that it is, and Christ ruling and reigning in that kingdom will not come until the nation of Israel receives Jesus as her king. Because that kingdom was promised to that nation. And now, once you understand that, you begin to rightly understand what the tribulation is for. People talk about the seven-year tribulation, the worst time on the planet. You bet it'll be. Do you know what it's for? To bring the nation of Israel to a place of repentance. To bring them to their knees so that they might receive their King with open hearts and so that God might finally establish His great kingdom on earth. That is the connection. Now, we as Gentiles who have placed our faith in Jesus can have great hope knowing that by God's mercy we weren't part of these promises. By God's mercy we have been made citizens of that future coming kingdom promised to Israel. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. When all that is messed up and backwards will be righted because Christ will be ruling and reigning in His kingdom. In the book that I've recommended to you several times, it's called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva McLean. Here's what he writes. Just listen. The response of Jesus to this woman was, quote, no harsh denial of help for this Gentile mother on behalf of her demon-possessed daughter. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament prophets often spoke of the benefits from the kingdom flowing out to Gentiles' people. But our Lord's words did underscore two things. First, that to Israel alone belonged the special covenanted rights of the promised kingdom. And second, if the Gentiles receive any of its blessings, these must be acknowledged in humble faith as having fallen from the table appointed by God for the children of Israel. And now you begin to understand the meaning behind Jesus' statement. All right, number four, woman's submission. Wow, I got behind, Jason. How'd that happen? Okay, I'm there. But we're going to sing that last song because it's too good to miss it. Okay, here we go. The woman's submission. Jesus' reaction, the woman's submission. The woman could have responded, beloved, in many different ways to Jesus' comment. You may have responded differently to Jesus' comment. She could have been offended or discouraged and walked away or in pride responded in anger. She could have questioned His fairness or demanded that she be treated like everyone else. Jesus' response to her desperate request, it would have been hard to hear. I mean, remember the scenario. Please, Jesus, begging. Not once, but over and over again, help my daughter. And here's Jesus. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. How would you respond to that? This is beautiful. 728, look back at the text. Mark 7, verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord reflects her her humble submission to His will in this matter. She realized that He had the right to refuse her request. She did not wrongly assume that Jesus was obligated just because she asked to help her. But what about her daughter? What about her? If Jesus does not help her, then she certainly will be without hope. So she makes one final plea and says, yet even the dogs 
under the table eat the children's crumbs. This statement further demonstrates that she willingly accepted Christ's initial response. She's now identifying herself in the story. One writer says, and I love this, she clearly accepts the role of dog and comes begging for food. The dogs under the table feed when the children drop a morsel or two. She is not asking for a catered full-course meal, just a little crumb of Jesus' power for a little dog. She knew she was in no position to make any demands, but that didn't keep her from appealing to His mercy. And finally, the story's conclusion. Mark chapter 7, 29 through 30. Fifth point. There it is. And he said to her, look back at the text. For this statement, the one she just made, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus did not say, you worthless Gentile, how dare you continue to ask for my help? He did not do that. Who do you think you are? No, instead, he graciously granted her humble and faith-filled request. He tells her to go. It's done. And she leaves. Notice that she does not question him. Are you sure? <laughs> uh, don't you need to see her first? He healed this, this, this daughter from a distance. She wasn't even there. But she simply took him at his word. This Gentile woman came to Jesus hoping and believing he could do something for her desperate situation. And she did not leave disappointed. Now, for us, some implications here. As a Gentile, this woman could not rely on her credentials to solicit Jesus' help. She could not. She was in no position as a Gentile. Writer says, one writer says, she comes empty-handed and can make no claim. She has no merit. We're Gentiles. She has no merit, no priority, no standing, nothing to commend her. Her manner is the opposite of the snippy, quote, you owe me, end quote, attitude that prevails among so many today. She does not argue that her case is an exception or lobby for special treatment. She only accepts his judgment and bows down as a beggar for grace. This mercy that Jesus showed to the Syrophoenician woman foreshadowed the mercy that God would extend to us as unworthy Gentiles. Let me read you just this passage. You can turn there. Probably be good for you to do that. Turn there and read it with me. Romans chapter 15, page 949. This will be our last passage. Romans 15. Beginning in verse 8. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes these words. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's a reference to Jews. He became a servant to the circumcised. Why? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenants. But oh, verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His what? Mercy. And then he begins to pull all of these quotations from the Old Testament Scripture and puts them all together here in Romans chapter 15. As it is written, meaning it was written in the Word of God, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even He, this is Christ, 
a descendant of Jesse. That's what it means. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The commentator says, God had made covenants only with Israel, not with Gentiles. So God has no covenantal promises to confirm with the Gentiles. Any spiritual blessings that come to the Gentiles spring solely from the mercy of God. Nevertheless, God eternally purposed to bless the Gentiles through the Lord Jesus as their Messiah and through His covenants with Israel. Beloved, through faith in Christ, we as Gentiles go from being no-hope carters to abounding in hope. But only because of God's great mercy extended to us through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider these things, some of them are very difficult and require a deeper understanding of Your Word, a more thorough knowledge of what it says. So Father, I pray through Your Spirit that You would help Your people to absorb this message, to meditate on it, to think about it, that it might challenge them. To recognize that we are, as Gentiles, we're with no hope outside of Christ. And it is only by your mercy, your pity, and your compassion that we have now been made citizens of that future coming earthly kingdom that you have promised to the nation of Israel, where your Son, our Savior and Redeemer, will rule and reign in righteousness. Father, help us to just soak that in to rejoice in these things. Father, all of that could not have been made possible unless Your Son gave Himself for us and unless Your Son rose again from the dead. So Father, help us as we think through the events of this week and how that all ties together. May we glory in Your mercy. I pray. Amen.